Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. I am John Human, the editor of the Investors Chronicle. I'm joined today by Companies Editor Stephen Wilmot. Hello, John. How you doing? Good, thanks. Excellent. Ian Smith, uh, Deputy Companies Editor, and you've done the news again this week. I have done news again this week. How are you doing, John? Not too bad, not too bad. And uh, in the control room today, Kate Bioli. How are you doing, Kate? I'm all right, thanks. Good, good. Okay, so uh, it's an exciting week this week because it is election week, and obviously that has a massive impact on the markets, doesn't it? Well, if you believe the sun, uh, <laughs> the mere thought of Ed Miliband getting elected was enough to send the FTSE into a nosedive, um, ignoring slightly the global bond sell-off uh, that preceded it uh, that most other market commentators are pointing to. Um, so, yeah, as a, another example of how um, people can really interpret uh, the stock price movements in any way that they wish. Exactly, exactly. So, the, I mean, let's, let's start with the, uh, the global bond sell-off, because that's really gathered pace in the past few days really i mean this yeah. is this is sort of caught everyone by surprise a little bit it, it it has and um you know some people say it's kind of been triggered by the rise in the oil price pushing up kind of longer term inflation expectations and also some kind of positive more positive expectations for uh, european growth uh chris Dillo has actually written about it this week in our news section but he's said that some of the drivers i mean you've written about it also this week in terms of quantitative easing mm. A lot of the pressures that are pushing were pushing yields down are still there. So how long this kind of um, d- downward shift in bond prices will go on um, remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so uh, I ran Copoc uh, again this month. Copoc, our, our sort of market timing system, which we've been running for years and years and years. And, you know, Copoc has, you know, it, it's a pretty good system. And, and it's been saying buy bonds for, for a long, including government bonds and corporate bonds for, for a while. You know, back when there was talk of... Uh, a, a bursting of the bomb bubble even then and it never happened and Copoc has been proved right and we saw this week the first sell uh, signal on bonds from Copoc which was the iBox long dated corporate bonds um, and, and obviously you know it's quite timely that that covers the month of April and that we're now seeing this very very significant weakness in uh, in government bonds but yeah so uh, what I've written about in my editorial that you've uh, referred to is that data from the US has been very weak uh, in the past week, we've had some some pretty pretty awful economic data. Um, so the expectations of a rate rise seem to be dissipating by the day. And they're, they're even you know some extreme commentators like Peter Schiff, for example, are talking about how how in fact QE four might in fact be on the way. So yeah, whilst um, you know bonds are selling off today, you know the the, the reality is that the outlook for um, monetary tightening is perhaps not again as certain as it was a couple of weeks ago. I agreed. I mean, there was some US productivity data out uh, this week as well, saying that productivity had slowed in first quarter after that data around the trade deficit, which would ri- risen forty three percent in March. So yeah, the US economy not um, powering on um, as it was looking a few months ago. Mm, and, and consumption data there, consumer consumption data, and that's a big part of the US economy has been pretty. Uh, pretty lacklustre as well so uh yeah it's it's interesting it's interesting what's triggered this this sudden sell-off the sudden heading for the exits of bonds um of government bonds and you know the oil price has been as you say offered as one explanation and that has risen so i printed off some graphs before we came in uh looking at uh, west texas crude uh which is up past 60 dollars a barrel uh that's from sort of the mid mid 40s um in the middle of March, uh, Brent is uh, is up to sixty seven dollars a barrel. So I mean, this is this is quite quite significant the rise in the oil price. But we kind of expected that, you know, ha- having hit a low, 
you could argue that that was oversold and there was going to be a bit of a bounce back. So then to suddenly say, oh, no, inflation expectations have, have suddenly you know, changed. It seems odd to me. Mm. It seems odd to me. Stephen, you wrote about oil this week and the taking stock. My taking stock column this week is basically an argument why it's a good time to buy Shell. It's, it's more a, um, a value thing than anything else. They came out with Q1 statements, the BP and Shell, over the past week. Uh, Shell's was a week ago today, actually. And also Total, the French um, major, and ExxonMobil came out with the results. And basically, they all showed the same thing, which was that the um, refining operations of these companies um, have compensated for the weakness in the exploration operations. So although the oil prices really hit their profits in their production arms, um, actually lower oil prices are a good thing for their refining arms because they can make better margins. You know, it hasn't offset it completely, but they haven't been decimated either. And the crucial point with Shell is that the dividend looks well covered. So if you believe that the dividend is well covered, even in the first quarter of 2015, where oil price averaged below $50, then with oil price looking like it's stabilised, if not you know, moving up quite sharply, then then it, it really does seem like a no-brainer to be buying Shell when, when it's yielding 6%. But what about what about the BG deal? Because, I mean, that is a big B- stretch. Yeah, the, the history of mega deals is, is not pretty, um, and we can all point to a number which went really badly. However, it strikes me as opportunistic rather than this isn't about overly bullish forecasts. This is about opportunism on the part of Shell, right? This is a good opportunity. I mean, it basically, it's a bottom of the market deal, not a top of the market deal. Um, and I, I think that for me is the, the reason why I'm, I mean, quite apart from, okay, there's in, big integration risk as ever with a big deal, but they, they're not making outlandish assumptions on commodity prices to make the numbers stack up. Um, so it's cost savings. Well, there's a lot of cost savings as well. I mean, they've estimated $2.5 billion, um, which a lot of analysts think is a huge underestimate. We happen to own some BG shares in our household. And, uh, you know, I'll, ha- I'll happily become a Shell shareholder, but I don't know if I'd be buying them hmm. with this big acquisition execution risk hanging over them. Hmm. And it's going to take a long time. Yeah, and it's not supposed to complete until uh, for another year almost. So... That there, 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 there is that big execution risk. Um, hey, Stephen, it's your ISA. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're the lucky one if you've got BG shell shares. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been pretty dismal for, uh, yeah, for a couple for a long of years time. on that front. So I think we were due a turn. We've got some Centrica as well. They're, they're having a, a mayor. Uh, and um, actually, you know, going back to the election, um, if Midiband uh, and, and the Labour Party managed to form a coalition, which is not beyond the realms of possibility as we stand today. Yeah, I think my centrical shares are going to be looking pretty, uh, pretty uh, under pressure for uh, for the years ahead. The uh, the Labour Party and Ed Miliband do not like the utilities at the moment. But there you go. They don't like the banks either, do they? Ian? They're not big on banks. <laughs> well, they're not big on big banks. Let's say um, they oh, like just, just little ones. Yeah, they like the, little sa- ones. the safe little ones. They want a couple of smaller, couple of smaller banks to add to the biggies. So you've written something on banks this week. Are we out of the woods yet? Has the bank bashing reached a conclusion? 
What do you think? I really wanted to give you a definitive answer in this podcast <laughs> to that question, but I'm afraid it's a mixed bag, really, from the Q1s for the banks. And um, the headline we chose for the piece was "Bills, Bills, Bills," um, which you may know is a reference to a Destiny's Child song. Uh, but the point oh, yes, of the yes, song, you, that, yes. you know that one, John. Yes, um, absolutely. And of course, I did. Yeah, Stephen did. Yeah, not lost on you or the readers, I'm no. sure. Um, which is really just to refer to the huge extra weight of provisions that were set aside um, for PPI and for. Forex and the other past misconduct of the larger banks that we saw in the in the first quarter, and that especially for RBS and Barclays, um, kind of pushed the share prices down because I think the market wasn't quite expecting the size of the one off one off charges. But there's also reasons to be cheerful, especially HSBC and Lloyd's. If with HSBC you can look past the very politicised um, statements that have come out that have kind of affected the share price. Mm-hmm. There was some good underlying kind of business growth there um, and Lloyd's too. Um, it looks like the government might have an easier job than expected in exiting its Lloyd's stake. Um, good um, kind of this benign credit environment that we have at the moment is, is really helping the banks. We've had reduced kind of impairment charges for the major banks. Uh, their wealth management operations have been boosted. The retail banking operations have been boosted. So it's not a bad time to be a big bank if you can lay aside the size of these huge charges. And that's what I talk about in this piece. Yeah, so looking at the graph you've got here, 2015, there's going to be a lot more uh, big bills uh, in terms of litigation and PPI uh, mis-selling redress. But 2016, it's going to be the lowest it's been since 2011, assuming nothing else comes out of the woodwork. Yeah, and that's the key point, I mean, with these forecast figures. You uh, often get that with analysts, don't you? Is that two th- the, the year plus one is always the great year. Yeah, that's yeah. when growth uh, kicks back in. And mm. So somewhere over the rainbow, it's going to be fine <laughs> for the UK banks. Um, well, surely they can't have done anything else, I mean... Unless what what they're up to at the moment, I don't know. Yeah, well, okay. keeps rolling on. Indeed. Okay, so uh, yeah, the banks um, not ha- not having a great time of late. Maybe things are, are on the turn there. Uh, supermarkets they've not been having a great time either. Are things on the turn there, Steve? Well, yes, it's a it's a that it wasn't a good week for the supermarkets. I mean, Morrison's uh, issued its Q1 today, and the shares are down six percent, and that's because the like-for-like figures were worse than expected and indeed worse than last quarter, so that there had been an improving trend, which they helpfully set out. So sales excluding fuel. Last year, first quarter, minus 7.1%, second quarter, minus 7.6%, then minus 6.3%, and then in the the last quarter of last year, minus 2.6%. And so there was sort of some hope that actually things were stabilizing. But this past quarter, so the first quarter of the 2015-16 year, um, the like-for-like has deteriorated again back to 2.9%. So that's what sent the shares spiralling today. And and obviously they've got a new chief executive and he's said very little in this um, Q1 statement apart from the fact that he will be giving a big strategic update when they issue their interims. In when's, sep- that, when's that? Which is in September. That's quite some time away. So uh, I think yeah, the it, market it, might need to hear something before then. I mean, well, really, I, I, I mean, the, the, you know, this, yeah, this is, this is it, a catastrophic performance but, over a number of years. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say this isn't the time to be buying back into the reco- into the Morrison's recovery story. Like, wait until September at the very least to see what um, the new chief executive has to say. I mean, that's insane. I think that's. I mean, that's insane. I've got to say, my, my personal view there is I think you need to be getting some, some mm. messages out there a lot quicker than that. I mean, the one thing I will accuse Dalton Phillip of, 
Actually, I'll accuse you of many things. <laughs> Did they? He took his time, and at, at first, I thought that was quite quite an admirable trait, and, and eventually, it became the thing that, that came back to bite him. And mm. you know, Internet I don't shopping, think I, convenience I, stores. Yeah, I don't think chief exec should rush into things, but in Morrison's case, you know, when you've actually had a deterioration in like for like sales again, yeah. You got to be. You got to be out. Well, think about Dalton Phillips as he dithered, and then he he sort of joined the bandwagon too late, overpaying for the Acado deal, and then yeah. getting lots of convenience stores that no one else wanted because they'd already sort of started to slow their expansions. Well, I mean, talking of convenience stores, I mean Morrison's. The last time we spoke about them on this podcast, they were talking about shutting a number of their pr- pretty much newly opened convenience stores. I mean, there, is there any update on that? I mean, have, are they any close to telling us which ones they are? I mean, um, no, I'm just looking at the statement now, and there's no real update on the on the convenience stores. Um, but the yeah, we we also had, of course, results from Sainsbury's um, yesterday, uh, final results, and it was a little it was an interesting one because at first the the shares bounced um, as people saw that the pre tax profit, the adjusted pre tax profit figure came in lower. Sorry, it came in higher than um, expectations, and the like for like figure was slightly better. They the like-for-likes were down only 1.9%. But then, actually, the, the shares finished the, yesterday down 3% um, because well, the analysts came out and pointed out that actually this was only due to the timing of their promotions. So they're, you know, in, in the, the lingo of food retailing, they're investing in price cuts, um, which effectively means you know they're cutting their margins. And they... they the, the, there are more price cuts on the way, but they didn't have quite so many um, in the first part of the year. So basically, the the margin has come out slightly better than expected, but no one expects it to rem- to, to stay that way. So uh, then, w- when people sort of started to realise this, this wasn't exactly stabilisation of trading; it was more to do with just um, the timing of of price cuts. Um, investors lost interest again, and. Yeah, basically, it hasn't been a good week for food retail. It doesn't, you know, there was early evidence in the first quarter that the situation was stabilising as far as um, the competitive situation with Lidl and Aldi and the Kantar World Panel data, which sort of uh, everyone's been watching for market share figures, came out this week for April. And um, again, it showed that uh, the discounters are taking market share, but at a slower rate, an increasingly slow rate. So there is there are signs of stability, but... I guess the crucial point is that the deflationary environment doesn't show any signs of easing. You know, I suppose one could make an argument, given what we were saying earlier about the oil price, that pressure, those pressures might be easing. But I, I, I certainly wouldn't be betting on it yet. No, um, I mean the big uh, reason for the pretext loss they announced was property write-downs again. Yes, yeah, on, on a reported basis. Yes, on an underlying basis. Obviously, they stripped that out. And that was slightly better than expected. Yeah. But only due to these kind of promotional issues. I quite like the idea that they will start giving over their space to third parties. Yeah, no, this is a good idea. Actually, I, I thought the, the strategic update from Sainsbury's and their finals was very interesting. For example, they and this is sort of going against the grain of what was thought a couple of years ago, but they, they, they think there's growth there are growth opportunities in non food yeah. and also services. Just looking ahead to next week, um, and British land. Um, yes. So we we spoke last week about British Land and its exposure to supermarkets. So uh, I think British Land is going to kick off the property re- reporting season. Yeah, it is week. actually. Um, the, the, what the what May, are we looking for there? Well, yeah, the May the May reporting season is um, is is going to hit us next week, and yeah, the British Land will be one of the first. And actually, the, there's a disproportionate share of property in the in the May reporting season because both British Land and Land Securities, the two FTSE 100 property giants, um, have 
March 31st year ends. So, but we, I mean, we're, we're buyers of uh, yeah, and we're, we're buyers. And I mean, I, actually, I wrote that tip back in December 2013, just before I became company's editor. And um, Jonas, our new property guy, um, has stuck by us, and, and I, you can see why. I mean, it's it's a really very very strong environment for property owners. You know, every time there's a bit of a mini sell-off in the sector, as people worry about interest rate increases, something else comes along to suggest that there'll be a long while coming yet. Meanwhile, they remain very strong yield plays. You know, the, its portfolio yields 5 6%, and that looks incredibly attractive to um, other institutional investors relative to, to bonds. And so... As a result, its its portfolio sort of benefited from big valuation increases, but the the, the shares still traded had a discount to, to expected book values, so we still rate them rate them a buy. But yeah, the one thing is this: um, their exposure to the supermarket sector. They own a lot of Tesco superstores. In fact, I think from the top of my head, Tesco is their largest tenant. Um, so um, th- that has weighed on the sentiment somewhat. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, um, cover feature this week. Uh, Jonas isn't here to talk about this, but we're talking about buying European property. And partly this is because the euro has weakened so substantially against sterling, although it's come back a bit in the last few days. Um, is that the result of the election too? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Um, but yeah, there's a very interesting case for buying European property at the moment. Um, there are many tax implications that you have to consider. Um, there are many procedural implications that you have to consider as well because it's different to buying property in the UK so but there are some there are some potentially very attractive rewards on offer so uh bricks abroad is the cover feature so worth having a look at that what else we got in the magazine this week John Barron I thought John Barron John Barron uh who's a bit busy today I would imagine yes has written a piece. John Barron provides our investment trust uh, monthly column. He's talking about the attractions of the UK markets, and he likes small companies, uh, particularly those that pay dividends. And he's explaining why this week, and and, and he's he's chosen uh, a vehicle that he thinks provides uh, the best exposure to that, which you can read about in his column. We've also got a letters page this week, um, which we publish very occasionally, which answers uh, some of the questions that we uh, we receive. Um, lots on there because we've been storing them up for a while. Um, Sex focus on the, the nuclear industry. We've run a, we've uh, produced a video this week. Mark uh, Mark Robinson, the sex editor, has interviewed Emma Powell, who wrote that piece, which uh, was very interesting. Go and have a look at that. And obviously, we've got a stock screen uh, from Algie Hall. Low risk, high yielding shares. Uh, the, exactly the kind of thing uh, readers like a great deal. So, thank you for listening. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Ian. Uh, and thank you, over in the control room, Kate. I presume we'll be hearing from you tomorrow when you do the personal finance podcast. Well, very exciting personal finance podcasts. A lot about exchange traded funds. I yeah. I read that piece, and I must admit. I got confused by the yeah, names. Yeah, quite of a lot of frowning from your side of the desk. <laughs> I, I, I think the exchange traded funds industry has got a real problem with the names of its products mm, because they're not catchy. They're not that catchy, <laughs> and and a lot of them are very similar. So you know, maybe I think we should uh, start to lobby Raise them that tomorrow. Yeah, I'm up for, uh, up for that. I think they need a bit of bit of a branding <laughs> campaign, uh, branding for, overhaul there. Yeah. Well, I just think you know we know of occasions where readers got confused between companies with similar names. But, you know, in the exchange traded funds industry, the naming conventions are such that, I mean, there, there was one uh, ETF I looked at that had, I think it was, a, it was a combination of eight acronyms that were the name of the actual product. And, you know, this is, this is a recipe for... I think that would be the UBS ETF. I, I wasn't going to name that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, anyway, but it, uh, I mean, I, I, there's a serious angle to the to the piece, which is uh, I think you're looking at the, the best value UK European ETFs out there, and and, mm. and there's some very good ETFs despite their slightly dodgy names. So uh, yeah. I look forward to hearing you on the on the uh, Personal Finance podcast, and thank you for uh, helping us out today. Uh, thanks very much. Pick up the magazine, four point fifty at all good news agents, and uh, see you soon. Bye bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.